Folks, a very good morning to you uh, as you gather with us today. My name is David McCullough. I'm the Assistant Minister here. And uh, I'd like to add my welcome to that of Dave's given to you already. Uh, certainly as you join with us, you're most welcome. And if you can stay after the service, please do join us for a cup of tea or coffee. Uh, we'd love to get to know you if you're here for the first time or if you've been here for a number of weeks but we haven't got a chance to, to get chatting to you yet. Please do stay if you can. For those who have been with us over the past number of months, uh, you'll know that 1 Corinthians is becoming very familiar to us. It should have been said last week that 1 Corinthians 14 was a good place to pause and reflect on what Paul has been saying so far throughout the letter. Because in 1 Corinthians 15, we get a, a shift in gear uh, in thinking of what Paul is going to tackle for the remainder of this letter. It's, as it were, Paul is going back to basics. He's done and said what he needs to say. He'll pick up a few more things, but it's time to get back to basics, to really get to the heart, the real heart of the issue with the Corinthian church. We're looking at verses 1 to 11 this morning, but we actually need to look at verse 12 to figure out what Paul is working up to. If we were to just take 1 to 11 in isolation, we wouldn't get the full picture of what the build-up is uh, that's contained in the whole of chapter 15. If you do have your Bibles open, page 1155, we'll read verse 12. We know that a lot of things have been reported to Paul uh, through a letter that he received about the attitude and the behavior of the Corinthian church. We're not so sure if this was included in the letter or not, uh, this particular issue, but certainly it's one that he desires to address. And verse 12 says, but if it is preached that Christ has been raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? So their whole issue is to do with the resurrection of the dead. And Paul goes on to say, well, if you don't believe in the resurrection of the dead, well, then Christ didn't rise and everything was in vain. It wasn't worth it. He wants to affirm and reassure the Corinthians that the resurrection is true. But there is no doubt of it, and through the resurrection comes life eternal. You see, we've looked over the past number of weeks in particular at this spiritual level that the Corinthians had or perceived that they had. They thought they were better than others. Others in the church at that time, as in the early church that was throughout Asia Minor, but also within their own fellowship gathering. Others putting themselves higher than someone else. So for them, it was as if, well, okay, the resurrection doesn't count because we've been given resurrection life now. Living in Christ means that this is it. This is the spiritual high. It doesn't get any better than this. This is why Paul has been dealing with the problems that they've been facing, prophesying, speaking in tongues, those who believe they're closer to God by the spiritual acts that they do. So to them, it was the end of the road. There was nothing more. But Paul says there is something more you haven't reached it yet. It is still to come. So that's what's going to come in 1 Corinthians 15. We're going to look this morning at verses 1 to 11, which is Paul's back to basics. It's Christianity 101. If you're familiar with any of the creeds of the church, you will find the middle verses in particular familiar as the foundation of some of the great creeds that we confess as a Reformed church. So, verses 1 to 11, we find Paul's summary of the gospel message. 
It's about a journey. He wants to record for these Corinthian believers the journey of, of this gospel. It's the journey of faith. It's their story. They are part of it. And he needs to remind them that this is what it's about. And in this, these first 11 verses, as we've already seen, with, uh, seen how Paul does his writing, he includes some of the stuff that he's talked about before. So two things we're going to see in this passage. The first of all is the common ground that the gospel provides for all who believe. That the one thing that unifies this church is the gospel. And so that's the first thing we will see. And secondly, it's his own apostolic ministry. Now, he hasn't touched on this for a number of chapters, but he comes back to it, where he affirms his teaching as that of the apostles. He is in that apostolic line. And so his teaching is true. His teaching should be adhered to. And indeed, it is his teaching, along with the teaching of the apostles, that brings about the truth of the gospel uh, into the lives of the people who listen. One thing that we haven't done too much in the letter to the Corinthians is actually look at Paul's encounter with the Corinthians. And it's important that we're going to take a few minutes to think about that. Paul goes to Corinth in Acts chapter 18. And here's some of the key points, just a, a little bit just to help you figure out what his connection with the Corinthian church is. Paul invested a lot of time in Corinth. Acts 18 tells us that he stayed uh, for over a year and a half. He was ready to invest in this community of people. Whenever he first went, uh, Paul worked as a tent maker. He was a man who made tents, quite simple, a craftsman, a tradesman. And whenever he got there, he met with uh, Pontus and Priscilla, who had recently arrived from Rome following persecutions there. And he met them, and he started working with them. But each Sabbath day, he would go to the synagogue, and he would debate, he would argue and defend Christ to the Jews. That didn't go too well. Uh, so uh, Silas and Timothy joined Paul, and Paul dedicated his full time to that. The Jews got a little bit unhappy, and Paul says, well, okay, enough's enough. I'm not going to flog a dog, uh, a dead horse. Rather, I'm going to go next door. And he goes next door to a family. And to that family, he proclaims Christ. And that family come to believe. He says he's going to minister exclusively to Gentiles, but the family in question is a Jewish family, and they come alive with the faith, the whole household. And this is almost like the, the David Beckham of the men's cologne range. It took one public figure to accept Christ in Corinth, and many, Scripture tells us, believed. This wasn't just a regular person. This was a Jew, a high-ranking Jew, someone who worked and led in the synagogue, who came to faith, and so the community followed. Paul thinks it's time to move on, is getting a wee bit fed up in Corinth. But Jesus comes to him in a dream and says, no, stay. Stay because no one's going to hurt you. And that's true because what happens next, the Jews start to get very cross with Paul, and they start to bring him before the proconsul to get him charged and put in prison, and it doesn't work. The proconsul says, this is to do with your own laws, so sort it out among yourselves. They were saying that Paul had broken Roman law, but in fact it was their own religious law he had broken. And the proconsul says, sort it out among yourselves, and Paul goes free. So Paul stays 
with the Corinthian church a little while longer before he moves on and crosses the sea to Ephesus. It's an amazing story of his engagement with the Corinthian church. Right from day one, Paul is invested in this church. And that's why the language that we read in 1 Corinthians can seem so harsh and so strong and so, in many respects, uncaring. But Paul can go down that road because he does care and he does love because of the time and the heart he has for this group of people in Corinth. Let me read verses 78 of Acts 18. Paul left the synagogue and went next door to the house of Tatius Justus, a worshiper of God. Crispus, the synagogue ruler, and his entire household believed in the Lord, and many of the Corinthians who heard him believed and were baptized. Paul loves this church and loves this people. So he tells them plainly, get back to Christ. You have filled your life with so much, it is now time to get back. He wants them to get back to what is their story of faith as Christ has been revealed to them. In verse 2 of 1 Corinthians 15, Paul goes down what is the truth of the gospel. He says, by this gospel you are saved if you hold firmly to the word I preach to you, otherwise you have believed in vain. Everything that the Corinthian church has been trying to do is to do it themselves. They believe in a very basic gospel, but to that gospel they want to add and add and add so that they are seen and indeed they themselves believe they are more spiritual, holy people. Paul says, no. There's no such thing as the gospel plus. It is purely the gospel, the good news of Jesus. And he says that it is in this gospel that you are saved. The part of the world where I come from, the word saved is used, I would nearly say, every day in Christian circles. For many, it is an old word that, that conjures up lots of things and indeed would, would have people kick against what is uh, organized religion, as it were. But let me take a minute to say that there is power in this word, saved. Because we have to ask ourselves, what is Paul talking about? What does this gospel save us from? Firstly, we are saved from the punishment of sin. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. The wages of sin is death. Eternal death. Separation from God. That's what the punishment of sin is. It's not a nice place to be in that position where we are separated from God without any hope of ever establishing a relationship with him. We're saved from the guilt of sin. One thing in the human physical condition is guilt. It, it riddles us. We feel so much guilt for things that we have done and maybe things that we, shouldn't, or that we should have done. But the gospel saves us from the guilt of sin. Christ has taken that guilt and the shame, our guilt, our shame, so that we can know the freedom of not having that pressure on us. 
We call this grace. Getting what we do not deserve. Tim Chester remarks, grace is so simple to understand and yet so hard to grasp. We can't believe that someone would want to give us this, this free gift that we don't add anything to. The gospel is a free gift that says Jesus has done it all and we are saved from the punishment of sin and we are saved from the guilt of sin. Thirdly, we are saved from the effects of sin. Sin has a decaying effect. In its nature, it brings physical and spiritual death. Yet those who are saved in Christ are saved for him and are kept with God. First Peter tells us of the inheritance that we will re receive, an inheritance that will never perish, it will never spoil, and it will never fade. And Peter tells us this is the reason why this won't happen to it, because it is kept with God. God himself keeps the inheritance, so no one can take it away from us. No one can, can damage it. No one can do anything to it. But God keeps it so that we can know its truth. And so we are saved from the effects of sin. We may face temptation on earth. It will come to us every day in all sorts of manifestations. But God is the keeper of our salvation. Not us, not the world. And he is the one who will hold it so that no one can get to it to damage it. The final thing, we are saved from having to go it alone. The gospel isn't about putting people out there to, to be lonely, to have to walk this path in life as, as someone on their own. We have one who takes us by the hand, one who gently leads us. And the one who leads us is the one who has taken the guilt, our guilt, has taken the punishment, our punishment, and speaks for us in the presence of God until the kingdom is fully restored. The gospel saves, and this is what it saves us from. This is what the power, this is the power of the cross and the resurrection. There is nothing else that can save us but the gospel alone. No good works, no grand gestures, no smoke screens that we create just as the Corinthians were doing. And Tim Chester again remarks that when we try to prove ourselves by good works, we're saying in effect that the cross wasn't enough. This week we go on a journey. We see Palm Sunday and the triumphant entry, but we know where it will end on Friday, with Christ on a cross, arms stretched as he is pinned there saying, it is finished. But if we believe in something more than the gospel, Whenever Jesus says, it is finished, we turn around and say, um, excuse me, Jesus, that's not quite true because I need to do something else. Think of it like this. Imagine you owed a huge debt that left you languishing in poverty. Then a relative comes along and pays off your creditors. They've given everything that was needed at great cost to themselves. But then you try to give them some loose change as repayment. You let everyone know you helped repay that debt, that it was a, a joint effort. It would be pointless and it would be insulting. 
when Jesus says, it is done. It is done. There's nothing more we can do because it is he who saves us. We cannot save ourselves. Let's quickly look at the last verses, 3 to 11. Paul goes through the story of the gospel. How it came about, how it came to be, and how it came to be passed from one to the next. He starts by saying that what he has, he received from the Lord, and he passes on to them. That's his teaching method. What he learns, he passes on. He then says, Christ died for all sin. Not just some, not just a little bit over here and a little bit over there, but for all sin. He was buried in death and rose again on the third day. The miraculous. Rose again to prove that he had conquered the power of the evil one to prove that he was the true savior of the world. And then he appeared to his followers, Peter, the 12, over 500 followers, to James, and then to Paul. This means very little for us. These names, they're confined to history. But yet for the Corinthian hearers, some of these people named, certainly within over the, the 500 followers, were still alive and could testify to the truth that they had seen the resurrected Lord. James, one of the pillars of the church in Jerusalem, they would have known who he was. They would have known his story. And then, of course, Paul, who has been with them, spent time with them, and is now writing to them. But Paul goes on to say that he's slightly different. He describes himself as one abnormally born there was nothing wrong with Paul physically in, in that sense as we would think abnormal, but it's about his circumstances. He wasn't with the original 12. It's as it were he was in the wrong place at the wrong time. He came later. He never met the physical Jesus when he lived on this earth. Rather, Paul's introduction to Christ came on the Damascus Road. And what was Paul about to do? Head off to do his day job to kill Christians, and yet he had this amazing transformation into a life with Christ. Verses 9 to 10 see Paul going off on a little country path. We could quite easily jump from, from verse 8 to verse 11, but Paul justifies, he feels that he needs to justify what he's just said. He believes that his persecution of the church, in other words, his mass killings of Christians, should have been enough to condemn him. But he speaks personally of how God's grace is greater than anything he could ever have imagined. Paul is saying to the Corinthians, as he says to us, God's grace is greater than anything we can imagine. No matter what we have done, the, the words that were on that video at the beginning of our service, I don't know if any of them resonated with you as you watched them come up one after the other. God's grace is greater. How do I know this? 
because he saved me. And trust me, I know my sin more than anyone here. His grace is the thing that makes a useless body like mine in all its desires for sin. He makes it into something beautiful for him by his grace and through the power of the gospel so that I no longer feel the guilt or the shame. No longer will I face the punishment of what is due to be ahead of me. Rather, Christ has taken it and I enter into a life of hope that leads me into the presence of God. Paul says there is hope. The gospel brings hope. And to conclude this section, Paul comes back to this idea of unity. Everything he has said comes back to what he's already said in the previous chapter. The gospel unifies. Paul wants them to see that what he and the apostles have been teaching and doing for the rest of the churches and how they follow is the true gospel. They are unified in what, it's, what it is and in its truth. But for the Corinthians, it is they who are out of step. It turns out that whenever they, they got into their factions of I follow Cephas, I follow Apollos, and I follow Paul, it turns out that they're following none of these guys. Rather, they are going it alone making up the gospel to suit them rather than what is the truth. So how do we finish a passage like this? The overarching message that Paul is giving us is that the gospel is good news. It's good news that God loves sinners and has made provision through Christ's death and resurrection to overcome their alienation so that they too may know divine forgiveness and have a sure hope for the future. As a group of people gathered here this morning, we are very different. For some, they have journeyed long in the faith with Christ. For others, they are still discovering who Christ is and what it means to follow him and to have him as the one who oversees and rules our lives rather than ourselves. But no matter who we are, no matter where we are in relation to God, that actually is the question that we need to figure out. Where are we with God? You see, Paul has given us a snapshot of the gospel, and in it, it com he compels us to ask that question, where are we with God? He said the gospel saves. So, let me ask you that question. Are you saved? Do you know the freedom in Christ that means sins are forgiven and that a sure inheritance is waiting for you in the life after this one? If you do, are you living it? Are you living everything that we've looked at in the past 14 chapters? We've dealt with spiritual notions. We've dealt with idols. We've dealt with how the church treats itself and how they treat each other. Are you living it?
But if you're not someone who knows this freedom and this hope in Jesus, allow me to be blunt and ask why not. We often say that faith is a private matter. In the gospel, I don't see where that is. So for us all this morning, where are we with God? We have a gospel that is greater than any other message this world offers. Christ is the one with open arms on a cross that says it is done, and through his resurrection, it is proved to be done. So no longer are arms stretched out on a cross, rather they are open to embrace those who come. Will you come? Will you come and be part of a movement of people who love Jesus, who help each other along the way, and who will receive that great invitation to the greatest party we can ever imagine, because that is the inheritance, life eternal, in the presence of our God, our maker, our creator, and our savior. Let's pray.